thank you everyone for coming to, to the students and to the members of the community of the University of Washington and the broader Seattle community. We really appreciate it and we can't do it all without you, so thank you. Uh, it's with great pleasure that I introduce Ad Arna Westad, who's currently the S.T. Lee Professor of U.S.-Asia Relations at Harvard University, where he teaches at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. Professor Westad is an expert on contemporary international history and on the Eastern Asian region. Professor Westad won the Bancroft Prize for the Global Cold War, Third World Interventions in the Making of Our Times, which many of you in this room I know for a fact have read or at least have been assigned to read it. <laughs> uh, the book has been translated into 15 languages and it won a number of awards in addition to the Bancroft. And I have to say as a historian, it's a dream to write a book like The Global Cold War, which is not only brilliant in its erudition and its accomplishments, but also is widely recognized as such. Um, many people write brilliant books, but they're not always recognized as such. Um, but this one was, and, and it's a real pleasure and an opportunity for Professor Westad to be here. And uh, Professor Westad's new book is titled The Cold War, A World History, and it was recently published in 2017 by Basic Books in the US and by Penguin in the UK, and I strongly recommend anyone who's interested in the Cold War uh, take a look at it. It's a really another brilliant, brilliant book. Um, it's essentially a new history of the global conflict between capitalism and communism since the late 19th century. And it provides the larger context for how today's international affairs came into being. But before I introduce Professor Westad officially, I just want to make one note about questions. Uh, if you have a question at the end of the talk, please line up on either side. Um, and I'm going to repeat something that I heard once at a conference. Your first sentence of a question should be a question, and there should be no second sentence. <laughs> so please keep that in mind when you give, when you, when you decide to ask questions. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce Professor Arna Weston. Published last summer in the UK and a little bit later, the beginning of the fall here in, in the States. The last thing I'm ever going to write, I promise, about the Cold War, in, <laughs> in any broader sense, at least. And it really comes out of a very long time of reflection on that particular topic in its sort of broader implications. So uh, Dan said that some of you at least held in your hands one of my earlier books, um, The Global Cold War. And for those of you who have actually opened it, you would have found that that's a book that tries to make an argument about the significance that the Cold War had on a global scale for countries in what we used to call the Third World, which would see political project. So that's a book that really says some of the most significant effects of the Cold War and some of the most long-lasting ones, those that are still with us, did not happen in Europe and did not happen in the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union, but they happened in the Global South. Um, and that was an important thing to say, and that's what I said in this book. So in the one that I've written now, what I tried to do is to sum up many of the things that I worked on since then and present what is a more comprehensive international history of the Cold War. So in case you were wondering why on earth has this guy done two books on roughly the same subject, except for getting more in terms of royalties. This is the reason why. 
So they are different in, in that respect. So I want to give an outline just to begin with of how I, I put this book together. So the reason why it was published now is that we now have access to a lot more material on a global scale about the Cold War than what we had only a few years ago. Part of the reason for that is, of course, that more time has elapsed since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the interstate Cold War. But another reason, I think, is that a lot of people who are working within this field and on, on whose shoulders I quite literally stand with regard to reaching for the interpretation that I try to come up with in this book, has put a lot of pressure on governments in various countries, not least in this country, to release the kind of materials that are necessary for historians and other social scientists to come up with a more compre comprehensive new interpretation. So what I do in this book just wouldn't have been possible if it hadn't been for the many who are pushing in the direction of more openness about these kinds of issues, not just uh, in, the, in the bigger countries or the, the great powers, but across the world. So that also made it possible for someone like me to start thinking about doing a new history of this whole era and put it together in ways that I would argue are somewhat different, not just in terms of focus, but also in terms of overall interpretation from what we have seen before. This is a book that tries to put the Cold War as an ideological conflict within a 100-year perspective. And it's a book that starts in the 1890s with the first global capitalist crisis, the first one that had a real global span, the first time people started asking serious questions about the Cold War, uh, about, the, the, about capitalism as part of a Cold War being an international system that could be questions, that could be, one could ask uh, uh, serious, serious questions about. It also starts out from the radicalization of significant parts of the labor movement in trade unions and in political parties, in part as a reaction to that crisis, starting in Europe, but also spreading elsewhere. So for the first time, you have people coming out of working class organizations who are saying maybe the world should be construed differently. Maybe it should be organized in a different form than, than what has existed before. And then thirdly, the 1890s is the time in which the countries that were going to be the superpowers within the Cold War international system, Russia and the United States, expand as transcontinental empires. So all of this come together right at the beginning of the 20th century and formulates what is a much more long-term conflict over what the future is going to look like, based on very different principles of human organization, how we are going to set up our, our societies. And that's the framework in which I want to present the, 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 the Cold War. That it goes through the whole 20th century up to the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is where the book pauses in order to look forward to uh, the situation that we, are, that we are having today. So let me stress at the beginning that I'm, of course, perfectly aware that within that 100-year period, a lot of stuff is happening, right? Uh, a lot of other things that are different from the Cold War. Two world wars, a global depression, decolonization, 
European integration, the rise of China, the effects of climate change, a number of things that are happening throughout this century that are not dependent on the Cold War in its ideological form. So this is not an attempt at subsuming everything else that happens in the span of a century under one neat framework. It's the opposite. It is trying to understand what the Cold War was about and the effects that it had because it was influenced by other things that were happening elsewhere. But it's also an argument for how the Cold War influenced most other things that were happening, and very often for the worse, right, in terms of how these conflicts actually worked themselves out. So it is an attempt at situating the Cold War within a century-long development. It's not an attempt at saying the Cold War is more important than the other stuff that's happening. It's an argument for saying we have to understand the ideological Cold War the conflict between socialism and capitalism within this broader framework. Because if we don't, we, we won't understand it at all. We won't be able to grasp it, or it's reduced simply to a framework of two great countries, two massive states confronting each other. And that's a reduction, almost to the absurd, of what the Cold War uh, really was about. So, like all historians, I'm dependent on some degree of periodization in order to make sense of this longer time period that I'm looking at. Historians love periodization. I mean, we, we can't really make do without it. And in this sense, I think it's also important to give you an impression of how I constructed the book for you to get a sense of the significance that I put to different parts of the story in terms of how it developed. So the first time period that I look at in the book goes roughly from the early, 19, uh, the early 1890s and up to 1917, up to the year of the Russian Revolution and the year the United States entered the First World War. So, you know, it's a time period up to when you have these two states, these two gigantic states, right, that are engaging themselves in a much broader and much fuller sense outside of their own borders. And that's important because if it, this had just been a story about two political projects that were different and couldn't really work well together, well, that might have been important, but it wouldn't have come to take over the world, you know, for the best part of 100 years. It is when these countries go out in the world and really try to, to fashion the rest of the world according to their images of the future that this starts to have a broader impact on how most people in the world uh, would lead their lives. So the second period goes from 1917 and up to 1941. So it includes um, the Great Depression, which is crucial, I think, in, in order to try to make sense of what this conflict was all about and why it became so intense. So I'm going to talk more about that a little bit later on. And of course, it includes the coming of another world war signaling, again, why the stakes are so high for many of the people who grew up during this period. And then, uh, thirdly, the period from 1941 to the early 1970s. So why the early 1970s, you may ask? But that's mainly, and again, I'm going to talk more about this later on, because of the economic transformations that started to take place 
during the early 1970s, with the collapse of the economic and financial system, often referred to as the Bretton Woods system, that had been put in place after World War II. And my argument is that the effects of that reconfiguration of the global economy are with us all the way up to today. So those are still significant today, even if the Cold War as an international system has disappeared. Right? And then the fourth and, and, and last period is really trying to deal with uh, the 1970s going up to the end of the Cold War. Why did the Cold War end the way it did? Because most people who were looking at this, writing about this, from that latter stage of the Cold War, in various different ways, they did not all think alike, but many of them were thinking about this as an incredibly solid, durable, long-lasting political and economic system. I, I don't think any of them would say that this division of the world was going to be with us forever, but they would get pretty close to saying that, right? Uh, the idea that the Cold War would suddenly go away as the organizing principle of international affairs, if you asked that question as late as the mid-1980s, you know, at least if you did so in a professional sense, not only wouldn't you get tenure, but you'd probably be sent off to have your head examined, right? So the assumption was that this was going to last for a very long time, and then all of a sudden it ended. There has been important lessons for us today when we think about international affairs to take out from that. So as, as um, Dan uh, said in his introduction, I, I teach history and international affairs mainly in a public policy school at the Kennedy School of Government. So I'm preoccupied with history for history's sake, but I'm even more preoccupied with history in terms of how it can help us to ask better questions of the present of the time that we live in ourselves. And of course, the, uh, the uh, knowledge of history, the understanding of history, is most of what we have to go on in makes, making sense of our own time and in, in, in thinking about the future. So in that sense, this is really, really important. So in the book, I also try to approach the Cold War, particularly the Cold War as an international system, compared to other international systems. So I tried, at least to begin with, to think about this comparatively. And this is actually quite interesting for those of you who are trying to make sense of this in a sort of broader context, which I guess would be most of us. Um, the bipolarity of the Cold War, that you have two main countries around which the international system is configured, it's actually quite uncommon in history. It doesn't happen often. Most international systems are either multipolar, so they have many different countries that are contending for power and influence, a situation that is more similar to where I think we are heading at the moment, or they're unipolar. So they have one big country, usually an empire at the center, that dominates everything else and everyone else. Those are the most common configurations that you have in terms of international affairs. There are some other examples of bipolarity, but they're not many. There are, for instance, the uh, rivalry between Rome, by imperial Rome, and Persia in the first parts of the first millennium. They are the confrontation in China in the 11th and 12th century 
between the Song and Liao states. That's probably the one actually that comes closest to being like the Cold War. Because these were two states, two Chinese states, that were that had ideas that had much of the same origin, but interpreted these ideas very differently in terms of how society was supposed to be organized, tried to avoid a direct conflict between the states themselves, but rather fought a lot of wars through proxies. There are lots of similarities in terms of that situation um, in China back then in the 11th and 12th century. And of course you have England and Spain in the um, mid-16th to the early 17th century. Spain being the established Catholic power at the heart of Europe, very much believing that they could organize the future along to, alongside their, their, their own ideas. And you had England, which was this upstart country on, entirely on the European outskirts, as it looked in the 16th century, that had very different ideas and a very different form of Christian religion. Protestantism that went along with it. That also was a bipolar system of assault within Europe. Uh, but there are not many of these kinds of cases. And that makes the Cold War even more interesting, I think, when you try to understand it and you try to figure out why it became so intense and why it became, uh, why it became so predominant. And I think this issue about how predominant the Cold War became as an international system is a very important aspect, at least for me, in trying to make sense of this. So the Cold War came to affect almost everyone, even people who wanted nothing to do with it. So if you lived in Latin America or in India or in, in Southeast Asia or in relatively peaceful Norway where, where I grew up, to some extent or another, if you were born within the middle part, roughly speaking, of the 20th century, there was no avoiding the Cold War. Because on a whole range of issues, people were pushed to take a position. Maybe first and foremost, an ideological position, right? So which one of these big plans for the improvement of humanity do you actually want to go with, right? Not in this big philosophical sense, but in terms of which organizations you joined and who you worked with and what kind of aims that you were seen having for yourself. But also this broader sense that there was a direct threat implied if you did not act in the way that your superiors or those who tried to give direction to your lives assumed that you ought to go in, right? So that disciplining aspect of the Cold War was also very important. And of course, over and above all of this was the threat of global warfare with the use of nuclear weapons, which really sets the Cold War apart. This totality of it, the absolute conviction about one's own ideas as being the only ones that could conquer the future. Because if the other side won out, it would be better that the world went down in a cataclysmic war. That's also quite rare in human history, quite unique. And this is one of the reasons why I am so interested in trying to understand the Cold War within this broader context of the 20th century. Because I don't think you can understand it. You can't understand why people thought the stakes were so high without understanding the world that they came out of. Uh, what they had experienced as young people, roughly at the same age of, as most of you who are here today. So if you were born in the 1890s, 
when, when my story starts. For instance, born in 1893, like my, my grandfather. The world that you grew up in was not going to be a very pleasant place, right? Almost wherever you were born in the world, if you were born in the 1890s, you had a lot of trouble ahead of you. The two world wars, the global depression, the dissolution of many societies, the conflicts over colonialism and, and, and decolonization, all of this seemed to concentrate within a generation or maybe a generation or a, a, and a half. And this sense that things had become very, very bad, I think is the main reason for understanding, the main resource that we have for understanding why people were willing to take such incredible risks with the future of humanity as they were during the nuclear arms race. Because that can only be explained, I think, by the stakes being incredibly high, so high that you felt that if your version of the future did not win out, then all hope for humanity was lost. Right? Now, most of us today wouldn't quite think that way. But if you'd gone through the First World War, for instance, particularly if you had served in that war, as many of the people who came to institute the Cold War as an international system had, then you would think differently about the stakes, about how important what you were doing for the future actually was. So I think it's important to bear that in mind when we reflect on the, on the Cold War today. So in the early 20th century, of course, there were a lot of different conflicts around. And as I said to begin with, I don't really think that all of these were direct results of the ideological conflict between socialism and capitalism. But many of them were influenced, most of them were influenced in one way or another by differences over what you could call market-oriented economies on the one hand and social collectivism on the other. Fascism, national socialism in Germany, Japanese militarism, all had this in common that they constituted some form of critique of the way in which markets seemed to have failed at the beginning of the 20th century. So it's important to understand this broader context as well. This is not just about the narrow sense about people you know, joining socialist parties or, or, or adhering to ideas about business and, and market-oriented development. It's about people asking very fundamental questions about how the world was going to be organized along a divide in which people really had to, to find, their, find their own position. That brings me to this overall issue of trying to figure out how this ideological divide became an international system of states that lasted for almost two generations. Because there is nothing given about that. So I'm not the kind of historian who would say, ah, sort of A leads to B, and that's necessarily the way it is. At all points in history, just like today, people make their own choices, right? They do it, as Karl Marx was fond of reminding us, not under circumstances of their own choosing. And that's one of the truest things that he has ever said. But they still do it. People decide on their own future based on their own ideas and, and concepts. Now, no one in the early part of the 20th century would really have been able to predict the kind of war that the Second World War became. Right? 
No one would have been able to predict, I think, that Germany and Japan would, as it were, have a second attempt at becoming hegemons within their regions. And certainly, no one would have expected that within uh, the same year, uh, Japan and Germany would end up in a war against the United States, a war that they themselves had declared. Now, if you look at the whole trajectory of 20th century history, in terms of the increasing significance in almost all things of the United States, you know, that's a pretty stupid thing to do, right? Getting yourself into a direct conflict with the world's growing superpower. And of course, the Germans did this twice over because they also, in the same year, got themselves involved in a war against the Soviet Union. So in terms of the outcome of the Second World War, that's dependent on war. It's dependent on warfare. And it's important to be, to be aware of that. So the fact that in 1945 there were only two countries left standing as great powers, the United States and the Soviet Union, came out of the way in which the Second World War had been fought. But, this is, I guess, what Marx wanted to remind us of, uh, this is not a necessary outcome, but it's a very likely outcome. It was likely in the sense that these two countries, the United States and the Soviet Union, stood for comprehensive sets of values that people adhered to not just within their own countries, but also elsewhere. They were global alternatives, as it were, in a way that, that Nazi Germany or fascist Italy or militarist Japan never could be, because they were too preoccupied with their own development. They were too inward-looking. Right? So that's the one thing. The other aspect, which is the materialist aspect to this, right, is that only the United States and the Soviet Union had access to the kind of resources because of the enormous territory that they controlled that were necessary to fight a modern war of the intensity of the Second World War. All the other powers also had access to material resources, but most of them was overseas or they were newly conquered and they were therefore very difficult to mobilize, right? So that's not accidental. That's something that is significant and something that comes out of the past. I mean, the, the, the fact that Japan, during the Second World War, were able to construct five aircraft carriers, while the United States at the beginning of 1945 was capable of producing an aircraft carrier every second week, you know, that's not accidental. That's something that comes out of the massive productive capacity that this country had and which could be transformed into warfare purposes. Now, one of the reasons why I was interested in writing this book now has a lot to do with re-establishing the uh, autonomy in, in historical terms of the Soviet Union. Because we sometimes tend to forget that today. I mean, there are even people writing in this country who says, the Cold War is all about the rise of the United States. Right? From the beginning of the time period that I'm covering and all the way up to the 1990s, the Cold War is really about the relentless rise of the United States. And I agree that that's one part of the story, but it's not the full story. And it's really important when you do stuff like this that you recognize the big picture 
but you don't try to take agency or autonomy away from what's happening elsewhere. So what the Soviets did was not a reflection of what was happening in the United States. I mean, people in the Soviet Union or elsewhere, for that matter, during the Cold War, as today, acted for their own reasons. They didn't act because they somehow were connected to what the United States was doing or, or not doing. And reestablishing that is really important because it's, it helps us understand, I think, a bit of what is going on today. So the fact that the Soviet Union wasn't just a dissatisfied power at the edges of Europe, but rather did become the other superpower, not just through its nuclear potential, but through many things that the Soviets were trying to do is important. But it's also very important to me to stress that the Soviet Union acted according to a different logic from what the United States or Western Europe or, or Japan did, a non-capitalist logic, which we may be very critical of, I think, with some, my view, very good reasons, most importantly, because it didn't end up well, right, um, in the end. But it was even so for real. I mean, these people believed in ab abolishing markets entirely. They believed that the best way of organizing the economy was through central state planning, and only through central state planning. They didn't do away with markets because they were forced to do away with markets. They didn't isolate themselves from the capitalist world economy because they were forced to isolate themselves. They did this because they, they marched to a different drummer. They believed in different kinds of issues than what people, most people in the United States and, and Western Europe would believe in at that time. And it's important to recognize that difference and, and that logic, right? Uh, not all things are equal. Not all issues in world politics are about interests narrowly construed. I mean, that's as true, I think, during the Cold War as it is today. So that was one important reason why I was, why I was writing this book. Another reason was that I wanted to build on some of the stuff that Dan mentioned before that I did in some of my earlier work by trying to look at the Cold War as a global conflict and not just a superpower or Europe-centered conflict. So I try to deal in this book seriously with areas, countries, continents that are not often included into the broader understanding of, of the Cold War. Uh, so one of these is Latin America, which I think is one of the most interesting areas for research on the Cold War era that we have today, maybe the most interesting of all. And it also helped me to try to figure out how the Cold War was different in different parts of the world. Let me use Latin America as an example on that. So what you could say about that continent or about that region stretching all the way up to Mexico is that there had been in social and to some extent political and intellectual terms a set of domestic Cold Wars that had gone on within different Latin American countries between the left and the right that were there before 1940s, before the Cold War became an international system, but which then fed into this global Cold War between the United States and, and the Soviet Union, right? So, so this idea that Latin America was simply at the receiving end of the Cold War 
something that was introduced from the outside, I think is entirely wrong. I think people within Latin America were agents, were, were able to, to, to handle and develop these kinds of ideas on their own and took international positions, first and foremost in working with the United States on the side of many right-wing uh, Latin American nationalists, that came out of their own understanding of power relationships in their own countries. And this is important to me because it helps us to understand how the Cold War could become an international system. It was because so many people in different parts of the world, who in my view ought to have known better, were willing to buy into this ideological divide. They thought there was something in it for them, right? that they could benefit in one way or another by making these kinds of links. That didn't only happen on the right, it happened on the left as well in, 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 in other parts of the world. Um, but there was a significant buy-in, I guess we would call it today, uh, that it is in, important to, to understand. And that's not the same thing as saying that the United States did not act through interventions. Think Guatemala in 1954 or the attempts at influencing Brazil in the early 60s and Chile in, in the coup against uh, the elected Allende government in the early 70s. But it's saying that the United States could not just act at will. It was not just its own agent that intervened in Latin America. In most of these kinds of cases, there was a, put a, a, a push and a pull factor that came out of domestic circumstances in the various Latin American countries. And I, I think, so much of the most fascinating research that's undertaken on this now come out of people who have the skills and the background to understand both sides of the Latin American Cold War, both what comes from within and what comes from without. Well, traditionally, we've seen those as two very different stories. Another region that I spent quite a bit of time on, in part because the work hadn't been done before, was India. So India is generally seen as being on the side of the Cold War, right? Um, seeking a non-aligned foreign policy, trying to talk about third world solidarity, you know, all those kinds of things. And I think most of, most of that's definitely true. But just like every other part of the world, it was very difficult for independent India to completely set the Cold War as an ideological conflict aside. In part because the people who became the leaders of independent India in the Indian National Congress strongly believed that some of the instruments that had helped develop the Soviet Union, meaning central planning, was very much something that they could benefit from in terms of the development of independent India as well. So I started my research on this, believing that the uh, Cold War in India, or what you could call development ideas in India, ideas about central planning in India, more came out of the colonial experience than out of the Cold War. That it was more, you know, Lusky than Lenin, that it was more the LSE, London School of Economics, where I used to work before, than it was what happened in Moscow, right? That's not true. When you actually start looking at the papers of the Indian Central Planning Commission or other people who introduced planning into India, you will find the Soviet Union as a very direct inspiration and model. Um, in the same way as you did in China, roughly at the same time, in a number of other countries. It wasn't difficult, I think, at that point 
and this is a really important lesson for all of us, to think that the Soviet Union, at least in these terms, was the future, right? That centralized planning was perfectly rational, much more rational than a chaotic uh, uh, market system, capitalist system, that had led to a succession of crisis. So if you're Indian in the 1950s, you know, it's very understandable why you're asking the question, what kind of progress has capitalism del delivered? Certainly for India, right? And that you would be looking for something else, for something new. And that's the connection, I think, at that point to uh, planning coming through the Soviet exper experiment. So let me conclude talking a little bit about how the Cold War ended and why it ended the way it did. Why this very unlikely scenario of going from a totally predominant international system over onto the demise of that system could happen within, within less than a decade. So I've said before, and I say in this book as well, that it's very important to think about many ending points for the Cold War. It didn't all end in, in the same way everywhere. It didn't all end at the same point, point in time, everywhere. The Cold War, just like it had different kinds of origins, had very different endpoints, dependent on where you are in the world and what kind of issues that you are looking at. Some of these have to do with deeper structures, and some of them have to do with policy, with policy making, with people making up their mind about moving in a, in a different direction. Some of them are leadership driven. So I spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union back in the Reagan era. So everyone here will know that the Soviet leaders in the mid-1980s, Mikhail Gorbachev and his people, started coming up with ideas about international cooperation that would take us away from the Cold War. And that's a very important reason why the Cold War ended the way it did. But there were also reasons on the US side, which were at the time, and I lived in the, in, in the States at the time, quite surprising and sometimes shocking that you had what was seen as an arch-conservative US president, Ronald Reagan, who was willing to start working with the Soviets uh, even before Mikhail Gorbachev started coming uh, into power. And I think there are many reasons why Reagan did that. And the main reason, at least to me, is his fear and, and horror at the prospect of nuclear war. Being, I think, an optimist by nature, someone who is dedicated in ideological terms to the furtherance of capitalism and the victory of markets globally, the idea that this natural, almost God-given development could be interrupted by nuclear war was something that Reagan, under all circumstances, wanted to move away from. And that wasn't a product of his working relationship with Gorbachev. I think it came even before that. So sometimes you have these kinds of surprises in history. Now, it wouldn't have happened, I think, without Gorbachev. But when Gorbachev then came into power, he had someone on the American side to actually work with, which would not necessarily have happened under all US presidents. I actually can hardly think of another Cold War US president who would have acted in the same way, collaborative way, as Reagan did uh, during, during those years. So that's the leadership-driven part of it. But then there are also the economic changes that I talked about earlier on. And these play a very big role in my understanding of 
why the Cold War ended in the way, in the way it did in the, in the 1980s. So the idea of what we today call globalization, meaning that markets and market-based forms of economic interaction spread on a global scale, was something that was very hard to foresee from the 1970s on. And it wouldn't have happened without this massive expansion of finance capital that took place as a result of much more unregulated markets during the 1970s. This gave enormous advantages for those countries, including the United States, who were willing to take advantage of this. Uh, advantage of it in terms of spreading their, their economic interaction on a global scale, quite literally to buy into this new economy that was being created, and which spread incredibly quickly because of the combination that happened in the midst of this process between computing power on the one hand, I don't need to tell anyone in Seattle about this, so computing power on the one hand and communications on the other, which is a way of saying the internet, but the internet in its very early form, right? That all of a sudden you could get market information on a global scale that you could not have access to before. So a lot of people were able to buy into this new system, except in the Soviet Union and the countries associated with it, which deliberately did not want to be part of this spread of the market system. China opted in a different direction, which was also a massive reason, I think, why the Cold War ended the way it did. China had always been, under Mao Zedong, always been criticizing the Soviets, saying, you know, the Soviets are too cozy with the Americans, and they are experimenting with markets. This is terrible, until China itself moved exactly in that direction, right, and started making use of these new changes that took place in the global economy. The Soviet wouldn't or couldn't. And that's also a very important reason why the Cold War ended the way it did. So what is it that remains with us then of the Cold War today? So I say in the book that as an international system, the Cold War came to an end with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So that bipolarity obviously is no longer here. But on the US side, in my view, international affairs, international policies have changed much less. So much, at least up to now, of the US approach to the world didn't change all that much with the end of the Cold War. It was still about uh, the expansion of markets, expansion of capitalism, the expansion of American concepts of liberal democracy. Very little of that changed when the Cold War came to an end. The American alliance systems didn't change very much at the end of the Cold War. NATO is still in existence and has, has spread towards the East. Um, so. Not all that much changed on that side. Some of the most significant problems that are with us today, of course, come directly out of the Cold War. Think North Korea, for instance. Uh, probably the most dangerous conflict that we have in the world at the moment, certainly in terms of its possible consequences, is a remnant of the Cold War system. So I think we need to think very in very clear uh, forms about the past and the present on this. It doesn't make sense to me to say that relations between the United States and Russia today is a kind of new Cold War. It isn't, because the ideological element, the conflict between socialism and capitalism that really constituted the clash, that has gone away. I mean, the Soviet Union 
is no longer here. Russia today is an irritant in international affairs. It does a lot to stick it to the United States and other powers for that matter. But it's not based on, 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 on Russia being a global alternative to the United States. Russia is still in many ways a country in decline, uh, at least in economic terms, and will continue to be so for a very long time. China, the most likely challenger to the United States, of course, reads the Cold War very much in its own way. But even though I think there will be significant conflict between the United States and China over the years to come, it's very hard to characterize that as a Cold War because the content of the Cold War, the, the ideological divide, simply isn't there. If you go to China, I'm sure many of you have been to China, some of you are from China, you will see a society that operates at least as much according to capitalist values as what the United States does, uh, if not more. I mean, for me, as a, as a rather old-fashioned European, uh, coming to China and seeing this intense commitment to getting ahead through markets and through investment can sometimes be a little bit too much for me. Uh, and it certainly outdoes much of what we see in, in, other, in other countries. Let me talk finally about lessons. So people ask me, certainly where I am now, and I'm sure here at the Jackson School as well, constantly, so what can we learn from the past? And that's a good question. And it's an important question to ask. Now, I don't believe that there are single lessons from the past. So if you hear someone here at the Jackson School or elsewhere trying to tell you the Cold War means that we should do this and that and not the other, you should be skeptical, right? Because there are many lessons coming out of any historical period of the past. But there are some broad implications, at least to me, that are there in terms of how the Cold War ended, which should have more of an influence on our thinking today. So the first one is that this idea that the Cold War gave rise to, that only your own system can be good, and that on the other side is necessarily bad or threatening or confrontational, is not the best way of conducting international affairs. Right? You can be convinced that other people are wrong and that they are acting in ways that go against your own interests. That's fine. That based, that's based on your, your reading of the situation. But this totality of it, I mean, this idea that or in, the, the concentration on absolutes that the Cold War led to was something that was very dangerous and led to a world in which people were willing to take immeasurable risks with the survival of humankind, not least through the nuclear competition. That aspect is a warning, I think, to all of us in terms of how we think about ourselves today and, and about the future. And the second issue that comes to me comes from the way the Cold War ended. So a lot of people during that time thought that it was likely, however much they feared it, that the Cold War was going to end in cataclysmic war. Because most of these bipolar systems that we have looked at throughout history end that way. When you have two big powers that confront each other relentlessly, war is usually quite close at hand. Now, the reason why most of us are here tonight is because that didn't happen. Right? There was no nuclear war at the end of the Cold War. What there was was a series of negotiations between the United States and the Soviet Union, but also involving a number of other countries that led to multilateral solutions to some, not all, as I said, but some of the biggest 
biggest conflicts and the biggest challenges that the world was facing during that particular era. So don't let anyone tell you that the end of the Cold War was all about US power and the ability to bring the Soviet Union through its knees through military expenditure and relentless pressure on a global scale. There was one part of the Cold War, but it was not how it ended. The Cold War did not end through pressure. It ended through negotiations. And that's the way most international conflicts end, right? Sooner or later. And let us hope that in, in, in most cases in the future, it will be sooner rather than later. That's, to me, one of the biggest lessons that come out of the Cold War. So I'll end on that. Um, uh, looking forward to your questions. Really, really good to be here tonight. Thank you.